Let the Meat Cake. When we think of Marie Antoinette, a particular phrase cannot help but come to mind. Let them eat cake. Surely, Marie Antoinette made other memorable remarks in the course of her short life, but this is how we remember her. Why? It is because we are all children of the French Revolution. Let them eat cake perfectly encapsulates how Western democracies have taught us to think about royalty, absolutist rulers, and the blue-blooded. Some of us haven't gone quite all the way yet. The English, after all, still celebrate the Queen's birthday, and even the French are not yet quite ready for a president who eats fast food. But in general, let them eat cake has eternally attached itself to Marie Antoinette because it kindles the flame of the entire project of modern democracy. Let them eat cake continually reminds us how unjust it is for thousands of common people to live on the streets in squalor and poverty so that a handful of elites can gorge themselves in opulent palaces. It reminds us how absolute power corrupts absolutely. Give anyone unlimited privilege, and he or she will become inured to the suffering of others and even delight in their misery. Let them eat cake is simply another way of saying, albeit indirectly, power to the people, or of the people, by the people, for the people. Yet, the Anglo-Irish political theorist Edmund Burke, who was far from an unintelligent human, saw the matter quite differently. Burke was born in Dublin in 1729 and served in the British Parliament for almost 30 years, from 1766 to 1794. When he thought of Marie Antoinette, which he often did, particularly when writing his classic book, Reflections on the Revolution in France, he did not associate her with the words, let them eat cake. Reflections on the Revolution in France was written in 1790, one year after the revolution had broken out, and three short years before Marie Antoinette would lose her head. Burke despised the revolution in France and correctly predicted that it would soon turn radical. When he wrote in 1790, Marie Antoinette was essentially a prisoner in her own palace. About Marie Antoinette, Burke wrote, quote, It is now 16 or 17 years since I saw the Queen of France, then the Dauphiness at Versailles, and surely never lighted on this orb, which she hardly seemed to touch, a more delightful vision. Little did I dream that I should have lived to see such disasters fallen upon her in a nation of gallant men, in a nation of men of honor and of cavaliers. I thought ten thousand swords must have leaped from their scabbards to avenge even a look that threatened her with insult. But the age of chivalry is gone. That of sophisters, economists, and calculators has succeeded, and the glory of Europe is extinguished forever. Never, never more shall we behold that generous loyalty to rank and sex, that proud submission, that dignified obedience, that subordination of the heart, which kept alive, even in servitude itself, the spirit of an exalted freedom. For us, Marie Antoinette is the scoundrel who said, let them eat cake. For Burke, she is the most delightful vision to ever walk the earth. And Burke wasn't even French. How could Burke, himself a man of the Enlightenment, who supported the American Revolution, so worship a woman who used to play peasant in the gardens of Versailles, while real peasants starved to death, exactly so that she could play peasant?
Was Edmund Burke stupid or naive? Hardly. He wrote also that, quote, On this scheme of things, a king is but a man, a queen is but a woman. Burke simply recognized that humans are predisposed to hunt for things to, to bow down before. Burke knew that if they chopped off Marie Antoinette's head, which they did, that would not be the end of the senseless worshipping of authority. Instead, folks would just find something else to worship. Maybe this time not a king or a queen, but perhaps instead a political ideology or an artistic movement or a military dictator. Thus wrote Burke, quote, But power, of some kind or other, will survive the shock in which manners and opinions perish, and it will find other and worse means for its support. When ancient opinions and rules of life are taken away, the loss cannot possibly be estimated. From that moment we have no compass to govern us, nor can we know distinctly to what port we steer." Unquote. For Burke, Marie Antoinette was simply the lesser of many evils. Better a coquettish and spoiled princess be worshipped than a flimsy constitution. Today, as distant grandchildren of the French Revolution, and the American Revolution as well, we have been taught to think otherwise. We have been trained to turn up our noses at those who turn up their noses. Burke's way of thinking is utterly foreign and even repugnant to us. After all, when was the last time you heard someone make a case for Marie Antoinette or Louis XIV? The one advantage to having kings and queens is that at least we were honest with ourselves about where we stood in relation to rank and authority. We knew and accepted that we bowed down before superior forces. Today, by contrast, I would argue that this same bowing down is going on, but we are just not aware of it. In fact, we are in disturbing denial of it. Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky includes a quite famous parable, which shows how, deep down, humans crave authority. They crave to be told exactly what to do, so that they themselves can avoid the burden of making decisions. The parable is called the Grand Inquisitor. 
The parable is told by Ivan Karamazov to his younger brother, Alyosha Karamazov. Ivan is an ardent atheist, whereas Alyosha is devoutly religious. The parable which Ivan tells takes place in Spain during the Inquisition. In the middle of the Spanish Inquisition, as thousands of people are being imprisoned and tortured and executed, Jesus comes back, the second coming. Jesus begins making himself and his comeback known before the Spanish crowds. Nevertheless, he is surprisingly arrested by the authorities. He is brought down into a dungeon where he cannot see anybody. And there, as he waits in his cell, he is visited by the Grand Inquisitor. The Grand Inquisitor gives Jesus some disappointing news. Tomorrow, he is to be burned at the stake. This moment is brimming with irony. Jesus is now to be executed by the authorities for a second time, and this time the authorities are Christian. One would think that the Grand Inquisitor, that is, one of the highest officials in Christendom, would be overjoyed to see Jesus and would allow the second coming to proceed. Instead, he locks Jesus up and has him executed. The Grand Inquisitor, an elderly man adorned in papal robes, frostily explains the reason for this decision to Jesus. He explains that the freedom which Jesus would bring to the people if they were to see him alive again would destroy all of the order and servitude which the Catholic Church spent the last 1,500 years building up. The Grand Inquisitor accuses Jesus of expecting too much from the people and says that the Church does more for the people than Jesus ever could. He says that Jesus expects that people should be able to live through the Word of God alone rather than through what they really need, daily bread and protection. Belief itself should be enough to sustain them, is what Jesus thinks. The Grand Inquisitor explains, however, that people are inherently weak, that they cannot choose pure faith and pure spirituality because this requires too much freedom of them. Indeed, as soon as they taste freedom, they will, according to the Grand Inquisitor, immediately find someone or something new to pow down before. And according to the Grand Inquisitor, the prophecy which Jesus brought was to cease bowing down altogether, to completely let go into faith. The Grand Inquisitor says, quote, You desire that people's love should be free, that they should follow you freely, enticed and captivated by you. In place of the old firm law, people were to be able to decide for themselves with a free heart what is good and what is evil, with only your image before them to guide them. Unquote. Instead, says the Grand Inquisitor, we, the Catholic Church, quote, corrected your deed and founded upon miracle, mystery, and authority. And people were glad that they had once been brought together into a flock, and that at last from their hearts had been removed such a terrible gift which had brought them so much torment." Unquote. The Grand Inquisitor turns to go, but Jesus motions him to stay for a moment. And then Jesus suddenly draws near to the old man without saying anything, and quietly kisses him on his bloodless, 90-year-old lips. This concludes Ivan Karamazov's story, and as he brings the parable to, his, to a close, his younger brother Alyosha approaches him and kisses him as well. The philosophy of Edmund Burke, who was writing about 100 years earlier, 
is all over this parable. The Grand Inquisitor teaches that people are not ready for real freedom, and that if they were to ever receive it, they would find a new way to enslave themselves. In fact, they might even become slaves to the notion of freedom itself, ironic as that is. It might be hard to grasp how the return of Jesus would result in the emancipation of humankind. After all, it is not exactly obvious that belief in Jesus implies freedom. Dostoevsky, however, is imagining Jesus in a highly spiritualized, transcendental way. This is a Jesus who performs no miracles, who offers no bread to the masses, who provides no evidence that he is God. And in a way, that is who Jesus is for us. Anyone who believes in him has to take this step without ever having seen him, let alone his alleged miracles. To believe in Jesus is essentially to believe in nothing, to believe in believing itself. This is why the kiss of Jesus at the end of the parable is the most important moment in the entire story, if not in Dostoevsky's entire 800-page novel. The kiss is what real freedom looks like. Only a person free from all ego, fear, rules, norms, and even from freedom itself could bring him or herself to kiss the Grand Quisitor in that moment. Suddenly, freedom might not look so appealing. Franz Kafka's novel, The Trial, took Dostoevsky's parable and demonstrated how the question of freedom does not need to occur in grandiose settings. It need not boil down to a decision as to whether we should take a leap of faith to believe in God or Jesus or any other claimed deity. In fact, Kafka wants to say, freedom is a terrifying burden we face every day. In The Trial, the main character, Joseph K., is arrested but is never notified of the crime he's allegedly committed. But this arrest is just as ironic as the arrest of Jesus during the Inquisition. In Kay's case, he is allowed total freedom to live his life exactly as he had done so before his arrest. But Kay insists on going to court, on arguing his case, on making himself as much like a prisoner as he can, without being a genuine one. Kay is a free man, but makes himself into a kind of slave, even when there are no religious questions at stake. We cannot know what exactly Kay is choosing to let enslave him in his private life. Kafka purposely omits these details. But what we might surmise is that this elected slave driver is something rather mundane, at least to the objective observer. The brilliance of Kay's novel is that, whether we know it or not, we all have our own mundane slave drivers, which we could easily overcome by applying freedom to them. The problem is that we are not ready for this freedom. Imagine, say, that you are shopping for a new t-shirt and you cannot decide between two colors, let's say green and orange. Eventually, you choose a color, but even here you allow some slavish element to guide you, some external justification, some thought which surfaces, maybe even an innocuous coin flip. But imagine that you have no outside source to depend on, no logical interruption to tip the scales toward orange or green. Now let's change the facts a little. Let us say that instead of choosing between an orange or green t-shirt, you must choose between living or dying, or at least between feeling like you are living or feeling like you are dying. One shirt means death, the other means life. You have a hunch which shirt means life, green or orange, and which means death, but that is all you have, a hunch, or we might say, faith. 
You have the freedom to decide. But would you? Or would you instead delay the choice, speculate on the outcome, ask others for their opinions, fill out elaborate pro and con lists? This is what real freedom feels like. And when Jesus kisses the Grand Inquisitor, or if Joseph K. were to ever forget his trial, which he doesn't, it would be the equivalent of choosing the green or the orange t-shirt. As we read the Parsha of Korach, we also read from the first book of Samuel. The Haftarah tells us of how the Hebrews came to have their first king in the land of Israel. This was Saul, Shaul, who became king in the 11th century BCE. Samuel, Shmuel, was the prophet who appointed Saul to be king. The Haftarah records a speech Samuel gave to the Hebrews at the end of his life in which he explains why he agreed to help make Saul king. It is a decision which Samuel now seems to bitterly regret. He says, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of Ammon, came upon you, you said to me, No, Nahash will not defeat us, because a king will rule over us. You said this when God, your God, was already your king. Samuel accuses the Hebrews of that which Edmund Burke and Dostoevsky would understand about people thousands of years later. Samuel accuses them of weakness before freedom. Too weak and afraid to entrust their safety, health, and happiness to God alone, they ask instead for a king. Once more, we must adjust our understanding of God here, just as we needed to do for Jesus. This God would presumably have been invisible to the Hebrews, Indeed, he would have been so invisible, so seemingly absent, that it would have been as though he weren't there at all. Samuel's speech demonstrates once more how prepared humans are to trade in their freedom for order, protection, and security. But Samuel's speech illustrates another principle as well. Dostoevsky argued that one must let go into an abyss of doubt to experience freedom. Judaism's approach to freedom is, in fact, far more moderate. It does not require us to choose between the orange or the green t-shirt. Instead, Judaism even acknowledges and teaches that direct communication with God is impossible and not even necessarily desirable. After all, the Torah explains that it was only Moshe who spoke to God mouth to mouth. For the rest of Jews, we have been given the commandments which allow us to transmute our instinct to obey and our longing for order and protection, such that we may, so to speak, sidestep freedom while nevertheless choosing it. Dostoevsky conceived of Christianity in which the word of God is directly transmitted to individuals. Judaism, by contrast, granted this freedom only to Moshe, as he was presumably the only person who could handle it. For the rest of us, the word of God must be transmitted to us indirectly through following the law and interpreting the law. In mindfulness meditation, we are taught to focus our mind on a particular object of our attention. If the mind wanders, our task is to bring the mind back to that object, whether it be the breath, our bodies, sounds, or thoughts. This type of meditation is still to some extent reliant on bowing down before authority. The meditative practice is structured and goal-driven. We might say that, during these meditations, wonderful as they are, meditation itself becomes a god for us, a replacement of the only recently beheaded Marie Antoinette.
true meditation is the kind which Moses practiced for those 40 days on Mount Sinai, or which Jesus enjoyed when he spontaneously kissed the Grand Inquisitor. Judaism, I think, recognizes that, while we should strive for this freedom, we are not ready to fully let go. We need God, but we also need a king, and even more importantly, we also need law. For as much as Shmuel regretted giving the Hebrews a king, he still gave them one. We are not yet ready to meditate on Mount Sinai like Moshe. We need assistance. We need Marie Antoinette and the Grand Inquisitor, much as we might hope to eventually quit them. Just as the law brings us closer to God by limiting our access to him, sometimes having a strong anchor in our meditation session allows us to more richly experience the present moment. One meditative technique useful for finding this balance is called three-pointed breathing. Instead of just focusing on one thing while you breathe, you focus on three. You might focus on, say, the breath entering your nostrils, your hands on your knees, and third, the rise and fall of your chest. You could bring attention to your lower back, your neck, and third, to your feet in the three-pointed meditation. The choice of which three is, of course, yours. One twist I have added to this technique is to inwardly picture the Hebrews exiting Egypt during the breaths. The three points I choose for my body are my chest, my esophagus, and my back. As I breathe in and out, I envision the Hebrews exiting Egypt into freedom through God's parting of the waters of the Red Sea. My back and my chest are the waves moving in opposite directions. My esophagus is the dry land underneath the sea. And the breath, as it goes through the esophagus, are the Israelite people fleeing from Pharaoh and slavery. When I breathe the air back out again through my lips and mouth, I imagine it to be all of the Pharaoh's horsemen and troops who came to the shores of the Red Sea, but were then dispersed by furious wind and the crashing together of the waves, my chest and my back, which could no longer stay parted. There can be no life tip on how, or even whether, to choose freedom. To give a tip is to give an anchor, a source of authority, which is itself antithetical to freedom. And even if I say that my tip is that I have no tip, well, that is still, in a way, a tip. Meditation, however, can bring us closer to the freedom which we left Egypt to taste, but which only Moses could truly experience. Three-pointed breathing, in which you yourself become the exodus, reminds us that the way out of Egypt does not run through the Sinai Desert. The way out, rather, runs through ourselves, through our breath, in which we are continually changing from slave to free person, and then back again. Uh-huh.